This is the first episode of Ancient Weirdness for 2022, and I am still Gunnar Hauser. This episode is dedicated to mummification. Now, various cultures in ancient history had different ways of disposing of the dead. There were Neolithic inhabitants of places like Turkey, Syria, and Israel who removed skulls from the dead and covered them with plaster and made artificial eyes from bits of seashell. A woman at the site of Chateauhoyuk in Turkey was found buried, cradling in her arms one of these plastered skulls, presumably of a loved one who had predeceased her. In terms of cultures in documented historical periods, the Persians would cover the bodies of kings and elites after death with wax. And the Greek historian Herodotus reports that the members of a tribe called the Kalatii in India actually consumed their dead relatives. However, this tribe is otherwise unattested. Herodotus mentioned them in order to illustrate a point, that the Greeks were horrified by the concept of eating dead relatives, but the Kalatii were just as horrified by the Greek practice of cremation. There's also the Central Asian religion of Zoroastrianism. One particular branch, the Parsis, that survives today, would expose their dead to birds and other animals in structures called the Towers of Silence. This has come to a halt only in the last few decades due to a mass die-off of vultures in that part of India. Now, mummification, artificial mummification as a practice, is first seen in South America. The Chinchorro culture from what is now northern Chile began to mummify people as far back as 5000 BC. They may have gotten the idea from seeing bodies that had been naturally dried out in the Atacama Desert. They eventually developed different techniques, including the removal of the skin and organs, reconstruction of the face and body, and painting with various pigments. This was a hunter-gatherer culture, however, and they didn't have a writing system, so we don't know much about their beliefs. Traditions in South America eventually culminated in mummification practices among the tribe commonly known as the Incas. Sometimes the kings and other elites would sacrifice their daughters. And the bodies would be left on top of peaks in the Andes Mountains, sometimes at extremely high altitudes, over 20,000 feet. And preservation of the corpses happened due to weather conditions. But their kings were mummified artificially. These mummies would actually still be kept around in a very interesting way. A king kept whatever territories he had conquered in life, even after his death and mummification. Relatives kept a certain trust going called a panaka. They administered the lands and their revenues. So the king's successor would have to conquer his own territories. He didn't inherit everything done by his predecessor. And so this was one of the engines that actually drove Inca conquest through the entire Andes region of South America. These cadaverous monarchs would be brought out into public view for certain festivals, for example, the winter and summer solstice celebrations. And for this reason, the Spanish conquerors considered these royal mummies to have the potential to provide a focus for rebellion on the part of the Inca people. So they were eventually collected in 1569, moved to San Andres Hospital in Lima, the modern-day capital of Peru, and they were presumably buried or destroyed there. Now, of course, all around the world, when people think of mummification, the first thing they think of is ancient Egypt. The Egyptians developed mummification into a very sophisticated practice. The dead were mummified over thousands of years of antiquity there from the beginnings of Egyptian civilization in the Bronze Age all the way through the Roman period, and they've been subjected to very intense scientific scrutiny. 
The idea in Egypt of mummification is that it was invented by the god Anubis, who used it on Osiris, preserved his body. Both of these deities having an association with death. Very little survives in ancient Egyptian written sources as to the actual procedure of mummification. It is described, though, in rather clinical detail by the Greek historian Herodotus, who claims that he visited Egypt and wrote an entire section of his histories, book two, on that country and its people. There's been some debate as to whether or not he actually visited, but I think it's more likely that he did. Now, in his description, he talks about the profession of the embalmers, that they were organized, almost what you would think of as a kind of guild or union. Not really high-status people either, despite the important role that they played in society. Herodotus says that when the corpse of a person was brought in by their family members, who then met with a consultant, and this individual advised them as to the various processes that were available and how much they would cost. It was a three-tiered system for the highest level for pharaohs, elites, high priests, generals in the army. The procedure was quite elaborate. First step was to remove the organs because they're going to be the first to decay. Herodotus says that the brains, which were not considered to really be a valuable organ at all and not the center of thought, they were actually thought to simply produce mucus to clear out the breathing passages. The brains would be removed through the nose by means of a hook, according to Herodotus. Now, there aren't any mummies that really show signs of that kind of treatment. There might have been other ways to remove the brain, for example, out the base of the skull. They were cut into the side of the abdomen, and from surviving mummies, it seems it was always on the left side that this was done. They would make this incision with a stone and then pull out most of the viscera from the body cavity. Four major organs were dried and then placed in separate jars, which were called canopic jars. Canopic is a modern name which derives from a modern misunderstanding. Canopus was the helmsman of Menelaus, one of the Greek heroes of the Trojan War the ruler of Sparta, whose wife Helen had run off with Paris. And on the way back from Troy, Menelaus's ship was forced to put in at the mouth of the Nile, and Canopus was killed after being bitten by a venomous serpent, so the name was later applied to the site. Vases with depictions of human heads on top were found there, and these organ jars that they were finding in tombs also have heads, thus the confusion. But the reason the organ jars depict heads is because each was associated with one of the four sons of the god Horus. The lungs, which corresponded to a god named Hapi and the direction of the north, were placed in one. The stomach, which was associated with Duamutef as a god and the direction of east. The liver was placed in one linked to the god Imseti and the south. And the intestines, which corresponded to the direction of west and the god Kebisenwif, got their own as well. The heart was considered to be the seat of the soul and the mind, and it was left inside the body. Then, according to Herodotus, they washed out the body cavity with palm wine and spices. He names two, myrrh and cassia. Then the body was placed for 70 days in a kind of salt bath, a salt called natron. Then after the long drying process, the body was wrapped in linens, coated with resin, and returned to the family. Of course, at the beginning of Egyptian history, mummies, especially of the elites, were placed within pyramids if you were a pharaoh. Later, they had the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, and there's various tombs of nobility as well. There's some evidence that by the late date we're talking about here, because Herodotus was writing in the 5th century BC, that mummies were simply kept within private homes. 
There's even an interesting tale in one of the literary works of the Roman writer Lucian, one of the favorites here on the Ancient Weirdness program, concerning a man who kept a mummy of a family member at the dinner table for a long period of time. Now, if you couldn't afford the highest level of postmortem mummification, the so-called middle way was one where the embalmers injected cedar oil, according to Herodotus, by means of the anus, and was left for a period of time inside the body, and then it was drained, and the dissolved organs would flow out from the body along with the oil. Now, cedar oil just isn't quite that corrosive. It's not like hydrochloric acid or something. So this has been doubted. The lowest tier of service, so to speak, Herodotus doesn't describe too much, simply that the belly was purged, but in general, the internal organs were left inside, and they would still place them in the salt bath for 70 days. And this would actually bring the body down to really just hide in bones, according to him. Herodotus says that people killed by crocodiles or those who had died by drowning in the Nile were considered sacred and that their relatives were not allowed to touch the bodies or even handle them, that they would be buried after embalming by priests. They were the only ones allowed near them because they had died in this sacred way. And Herodotus also throws in a rather disturbing detail that one time an embalmer had been caught sexually violating the corpse of a woman who had been placed in his care, and so, in general, people would not turn over the bodies of female family members right away after death, that they would wait several days to try to dissuade embalmers from molesting the corpses. Again, this has been questioned. It might have been just malicious gossip on Herodotus's part. We don't know. Now, the Egyptians also mummified animals. This was generally done to certain animals that were considered totemistic for different gods and goddesses, and they were dedications. It's unknown if there was really any concept that animals had souls the way they thought that people did. Probably the most interesting was the sacred animal called the Apis bull. The Apis bull was seen as an incarnation of the Egyptian god Ptah. And it would be seen to reincarnate in certain bulls with distinctive physical markings, including a white triangular mark on the forehead. It was believed that the mother of the Apis bull conceived it not through normal mating, but by being struck in the womb by lightning or moonbeams. The Apis bull was treated like bovine royalty. Once it was identified by priests, it got its own harem of cows. It got a really nice diet. And its movements were read as messages from the god Ptah. And then when they died, they were mummified. And we even have a written document called the Apis Papyrus that describes a process that took about as long as the highest tier of human mummification. Seems to me like it would have been a real pain in the ass to deal with an animal of that size in that way. But hey, it was one of their gods, right? Tombs of some 60 or so of these creatures have been found at Saqqara, which was the center of Ptah worship. There's a very lurid account of the murder of an apis bull, but we're not sure if it's accurate. When Persian forces led by their king Cambyses invaded and conquered Egypt in 525 BC, the apis bull was brought before him, but instead of honoring it, he drew his sword and stabbed it, killed it in front of the horrified Egyptians. But it all caught up to him later at least according to how the Egyptians told the story. Because when he heard a revolt had broken out back home in Persia, he ran to his horse and leapt on it to begin the journey home, and his own sword wounded him in the leg in more or less the same spot where he had stabbed the bull, and the wound became gangrenous and he died soon afterwards. 
So Cambyses messed with the bull and got, well, at least one of the horns. Now again, people suspect some bias on the part of Herodotus with this story. Nobody really knows what happened to Cambyses exactly. It's possible that he was assassinated on his way back to Persia to stop the rebellion. They've actually found a sarcophagus of an apis bull that seems to have been dedicated by Cambyses. So the idea that he was showing so much disrespect to the Egyptians is not something that's 100% proven. Another example of a story like that relates to the Egyptian love of cats, which you might have heard of. They had a cat goddess, Bastet, and they considered cats to be so important that if the family cat died, everyone in the family would shave their eyebrows in mourning. Well, Cambyses was besieging a fortress in Egypt, the story goes, and to hasten the surrender of the Egyptians inside, he ordered all the cats in the vicinity to be rounded up and slaughtered in full view of the defenders. And as expected, the Egyptians began to panic and cry and open the gates in order to prevent this cat massacre from continuing. Again, it's hard to evaluate the validity of a tale like that. Cambyses was a controversial figure, and we pretty much have to leave it at that. We're going to turn next to the ancient Greeks, and while it is true that they borrowed many cultural concepts from the Egyptians in areas such as architecture, embalming and mummification is not something that took hold as a funerary practice in Greece. The ancient Greeks alternated between burials and cremations. But we can point to one phenomenon, and that was the temporary preservation of the bodies of Spartan kings who died far from home. This would enable the bodies to be brought back for the very elaborate and sacred funeral rites accorded to these kings. So this was not permanent mummification, and it was not connected to any concepts of the afterlife. It was simply done to prevent the bodies from decaying so much on the way home that they become a hazard to everyone concerned. One Spartan king, Agasipolis, died in northern Greece while on campaign near a place called Aphitus in 380 BC. According to Greek writers, his body was coated with honey. Honey has antibacterial properties, as noted by a number of ancient scientific authors such as Pliny the Elder. And of course, even if they were to cut into the corpse, which Greeks absolutely refused to do out of a sense of respect, you wouldn't get the honey into all the nooks and crannies of the body. So this was more or less just turning these guys into glazed donuts temporarily. There's also the story of the far more famous Spartan king, Agesilaus. Famous in antiquity, I mean. It's not like he's a household name today. He died in 360 BC at the age of 84 after ruling as a king of Sparta for over 41 years. He had been on campaign leading mercenaries in Egypt, had decided to return home, but he was in what is now part of eastern Libya when he suddenly sickened and died. According to the account of Plutarch, they had no honey available, so his body was coated with wax. But out of everyone in ancient Greek history, it was Alexander the Great who was the most famous individual to be embalmed. And in this case, it was a more thorough process than what was done to the Spartan kings. Alexander died in Babylon. Of unknown causes, there are accounts of a fever, which could have resulted from the local food or water. Although some commentators, both ancient and modern, have suspected poisoning. And malaria is another possibility. You have to understand that Alexander had lived quite an eventful life. He had taken many serious wounds during his military career, and his life certainly could have been shortened by them. 
it's commonly reported that his body was also embalmed in honey, but actually no ancient source really clearly states that. That detail shows up in later medieval sources, such as the Alexander Romance. Ancient biographers like Curtius Rufus simply state that Alexander's body was attended to by Egyptian and Chaldean or Babylonian embalming specialists. Now, Herodotus does say that Babylonians sometimes use honey to preserve bodies, but it's more likely that he received some kind of level of Egyptian treatment like we've described previously here. No one attempted to actually move his remains outside of Babylon for a full two years after his death. The historian Diodorus says that a coffin made of gold was hammered around his body, and an elaborate funeral carriage was constructed to take him, presumably home to Macedonia. This seems to have been the original plan, said to have been devised by his temporary successor Perdiccas, to have him buried side by side with his father Philip II. But the funeral procession, along with its column of escorting soldiers, was intercepted somewhere in Syria by a much larger contingent of soldiers in the service of Ptolemy, the governor of Egypt, later to be known as Ptolemy I Soter, or Savior, the founder of the Ptolemaic Kingdom. His troops actually took the body back to Egypt, first to Memphis, the ancient Egyptian capital, but it was eventually moved to Alexandria, the city founded by Alexander that had become the Ptolemaic capital. And it was in Alexandria that some kind of tomb complex was constructed for him, and there he lay in public view for many centuries thereafter. The gold coffin was eventually lost. In 88 BC, Ptolemy X had to pay off some mercenaries who had helped him suppress a rebellion. He needed cash really, really quickly, or he thought these mercenaries might turn on him. So the story is he actually had the gold coffin removed and melted down. But that enraged the populace of Alexandria so badly that they drove him out of power for another member of the family. Because remember, Alexander had declared himself a god right before his death, and he actually was worshipped for hundreds of years. The golden sarcophagus was eventually replaced on the order of the Ptolemies by another one made out of glass, according to the Roman geographer Strabo. Now, it was in this day within the glass coffin that a number of prominent Romans actually saw the famous mummy of Alexander the Great, including Julius Caesar, then Octavian, who had openly mocked mummification practices among the Egyptians. Oddly enough, his great enemy, Mark Antony, was embalmed in the Egyptian manner on the orders of Cleopatra, and we do have a few examples known of embalming in Roman culture. Nero had his wife Poppia embalmed, for example. It never really caught on on a large scale. Cremation was also the preferred form of disposal of the dead in Rome. Anyway, back to Octavian and the mummy of Alexander. Despite his criticisms of the practice, Octavian did want to see the mummy of Alexander while he was in the city. But when the glass coffin was opened and he touched the body, a piece of the nose was broken off. An important detail, which indicates that Alexander was not wrapped in bandages or linens. Octavian later became the first true Roman emperor, Augustus and he was followed by the Julio-Claudian dynasty. One member of that dynasty, Gaius, or better known as Caligula, is said to have worn an armored breastplate that he had taken from Alexander's mummy. The mummy was seen by later emperors such as Hadrian, and then at the end of the 2nd century AD, Septimius Severus, who made a decision to enclose the tomb in a new structure called the Brucheum, and that put an end to public visitation of the tomb. We're not sure why he did this, but there are reports that he was very concerned about people practicing sorcery in Alexandria, and that Alexander's tomb might have provided some kind of focal point for them. 
But then Septimius' son Caracalla is said to have taken a ring and other jewelry from Alexander's mummy, as well as drinking goblets from the tomb complex. Now, Caracalla thought that he was a reincarnation of Alexander the Great, and he was mocked by the people of Alexandria for those pretensions. The mockery became so intense that Caracalla ordered a massacre of people in the streets of the city. However, Caracalla died very ignominiously by being stabbed in the back while he was taking a leak outside a Roman military camp. That just doesn't have that Shakespearean feel that Julius Caesar's death at the hands of senators does. As far as Alexander's tomb and mummy are concerned, things start to get really murky after this. References disappear by the end of the 4th century AD. One Christian author, John Chrysostom, goes so far as to double-dog dare the people of Alexandria, you might say, to point to the mummy of Alexander. He says, where is it? Show it to me. Show me this great man that you revere above all others. And no trace of the tomb or mummy have been found since. Now, there is a possibility that the mummy survives somewhere, perhaps mixed in with other mummies from the Ptolemaic or Roman periods that lack identification. If it does survive and its authenticity could be demonstrated, it would be one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in world history, and with modern forensic techniques, we could conclusively determine the true cause of death of Alexander the Great. Once again, welcome to 2022 and another year of ancient weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. See you next time.